Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 38. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Tenma to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, Where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out. And he was named Zerah. Amen. So, yeah, happy Mother's Day. To you all, I'm sure you're excited to learn about uh, Tamar, about how to be a great mom or, or daughter or sister, uh, just like she is, of course, here. No, uh, you know, what's this all about, right? I mean, well, three things. First of all, if you're a guest or visitor here today, or if you aren't a Christian and someone sort of, you know, drug you here, uh, you're about to hear quite a lot about what this church, I think, is all about. And second, if you're a parent... You should know that today and next week there's going to be a relative level of uh, sexually frank discussion as is sort of in keeping with the stories and narratives. So use your best judgment when it comes to having your children in the room with you right now and next week. And third, if you'll hear what's inside this story, 
I believe it has the power to change your life. And I don't use that phrase lightly. This story has come to be one of my very favorite in all the Bible. And today, I hope to show you exactly why. So back to the question, what's this story all about? It's about three words here we're going to take a look at today. The story is all about justice, it's about mercy, and it's about breakthrough. Justice, mercy, breakthrough. All right here from Genesis 38. Let's go and take a look at number one and see what the Bible says here about justice. And ask first of all, of course, well, what's this story doing in the middle of the Joseph story, right? That's what we're looking at in the month of May is the life of Joseph. Well, this story is a kind of a flashback. If you've seen the show Lost, uh, it's a flashback. It's a flash sideways. It's a flash forward because this story takes place over the course of about a 20-year period. So the point is, meanwhile, while Joseph, we saw last week, is sold into slavery, while he's there in slavery, later in prison, this is going on with his brothers back on the farm, so to speak. And while Joseph's in slavery, in prison, who are we introduced here to here? Well, it's to Tamar. She's an immigrant to the the Hebrew culture. She's a non-Jewish woman who, throughout the story, probably doesn't grow older than about 20 years of age. She's likely 13 to 15 years old when she gets married for the first time to Judah's oldest son named Ur, and then... We're told Tamar is suddenly widowed. Uh, We're not told why, but right here in the passage right before this, we're told that Ur was so wicked that God put him to death. Was he violent toward her, uh, serially unfaithful, perhaps, likely, but we don't know for sure. All we know is we don't want to be that guy, right? But then we're told that Tamar marries again the second time, and this time she marries Judah's second son named Onan. And we're told that Onan is evil as well, that God ends his life as well. So Tamar now is a widow twice over, but this time we're actually told what Onan's evil was, and this is crucial to grasp. Because in that day, when a woman's husband died and left her no children, especially no sons, she was the most vulnerable, most destitute, most socially outcast person in that culture. So Tamar, the point is, can't just, because her you know, husband up and died on her, can't just up and now and get a job at the Gap on the weekend, right? She can't just go sling some coffee at Starbucks to get them some health insurance, you know, to pay the bills and tide her over. No, this is an agrarian, patriarchal society, and her options are severely limited. Therefore, in that culture, something happened, and that something was later put into law by God himself. There was something called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage, where the dead husband's brother would take the widow to be his wife, and together they would have a child who would carry on the dead man's name and receive whatever inheritance the deceased man had coming to him, so as to provide for the widow and not leave her destitute. So Onan, second son, after his brother Ur dies, takes, we're told, Tamar to be his wife. But when they go to bed together, we're told, he spills his seed on the ground to prevent her from becoming pregnant. And then having the child, he'll be forced now to provide for. That won't be considered his. In other words, the point is, now only is, not only is Onan content to use Tamar's body 
without providing for her future. But he's also content to keep his older brother's inheritance for himself because if his brother Ur had never married and died without ever marrying, the inheritance would have been his, would have been Onan's. But because Ur had married, and Onan is now responsible to care for Tamar and to provide a son to whom the inheritance would go. This is the height of selfishness, using a woman's body and in a way, failing to pay child support, right? But this wasn't just selfish. This is something else altogether, which is why God puts Onan to death. So what was it beyond selfishness? Why is God so upset about this? Let's keep going. When Tamar's second son dies on her, uh, as part of Judah's clan, now Judah is responsible to care for Tamar. So what will Judah do? Judah's the brother of Joseph. That's how he makes it into the story. So what does Judah do? Will he provide for her as was his duty and promise? No. Look at verse 11. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow. Where? In your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. So Judah sends her away back to her father's house. This would have been considered outrageous. Tamar's father would have likely already paid a dowry to Judah for a wedding gift to take care of Tamar. So what Judah does here is financially selfish as well. I wonder where his son Onan got it from. Tamar was his to provide for, but he sends her away and then makes her a promise. He's got no intention of ever fulfilling. He says, go back to your father until my son is old enough to marry you, and then he'll be yours. Now, every commentator I could ever find at this point says that Judah is hoping to never have to deal with or see Tamar ever again. Why? We get his inner thoughts here. It says, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. What's happening is that Judah is blaming Tamar for their deaths instead of looking in the mirror as a failed father. So when the third boy, Shelah, grows up, will Judah do the right thing? That's the tension here. Will he fulfill his promise? No. The very next verse tells you, verse 12, it says what? After a long time. Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. So here's the big picture. Judah has promised but failed to care for Tamar. And now he is a widow, widower as well. He's a widower. She's a widow. What will happen next? What will Judah do? Well, now that his wife is out of the picture, he goes back to his boys club with his buddy Hiram. Not a good, not a God follower. And he goes up as it says to shear his sheep. You're saying, man, what's this? Like the 4-H club getting together on a weekend, kind of weird. I don't get it. No, this seems like nothing to us. But oh, in that day, sheep shearing was when it went down. When it went down. This is when they sold the wool. This is when the money was going to come in, right? The stocks were going to be sold. Companies going public. Bonuses come in. Checks get cashed. In other words, Judas got his crew, right? The money is good. And now Judah's looking for a good time, no strings attached. So what does Tamar do in the middle of all of this? Well, she takes matters into her own hands. And what she does here, uh, people have had lots of different words for it over the years. Uh, Words like bold, (laughs) assertive, 
uh, shrewd, even outrageous. Yeah. And it's all of these things, but it's something else as well. Uh, Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute. She comes on to Judah. She negotiates a price for her services and he offers to pay her with the goat. And what's up with the goat, Judah? You're always going to the goat uh, to get out of trouble, right? Last chapter, he goes to the goat to slaughter the goat, to put the blood of the goat on his brother's coat to trick his father. Now here he's trying to have a goat to pay for sex, but didn't have the goat on him. which Tamar would have known. So she asks for Judah's staff and cord. This is basically an early version of a driver's license and credit card. It's a bold ask, but Judah doesn't care because Judah wants what Judah wants when Judah wants it. So he gives her basically his passport, his keys of the Ferrari. They sleep together. He leaves. She gets pregnant by him. What a great story. Matter of fact, it's a great Sunday school lesson. I think we're teaching your kids the same story today. Back over in MKITS. I'm just kidding. That's not true. And yet this is the Bible, right? This is God's word to us. What is Tamar doing? What's she up to? Oh. Here is what Tamar is doing. Tamar is going after, here's the word, justice. Tamar is going after justice. She's going after the justice that has been denied to her. And she is calling Judah on the carpet now in two ways. First of all, she's calling him, calling Judah, on his sexual double standard. You say, where's that? Oh, listen, the text begs you to see it because when Judah is, loses his wife, when, his, when he's widowed, he feels like he can do what? Come on, have sex with whomever he wants on a weekend trip with the boys. But when Tamar is not once but twice widowed and she goes to Vegas to party and have sex and he finds out, what does he do? Oh, he tries to burn her when she's pregnant. See, Tamar is saying in a way, she's saying, Time's up, Judah. Time's up, hashtag patriarchy, right? You can't have a sexual double standard. Boys will be boys is not an excuse anymore. She's calling him on a sexual double standard. But she's also calling him here on something far more profound. Here it is. She's calling him on his injustice towards her. And here's what I mean. In the Bible, justice is really something different than how we sort of consider it and process it as Americans. Bible justice is not, here's how we think of it, we think justice is just not harming someone, right? I didn't knock off the 7-Eleven, I didn't firebomb the UN embassy, I didn't shoot that guy today, I'm a just person. That's not Bible justice at all. Bible justice is about seeing someone who is in need, who is on the underside of power, who is disadvantaged culturally, and then doing for them what they cannot do for themselves because, here is the phrase, because you owe them as someone made in the image of God. So go look up, if you don't believe me, like the hundred or more verses that talk about how God commands his people, Old and New Testament, to treat and care for orphans and widows, among others. So that's Bible justice, giving to someone something you owe them as someone made in the image of God. And you can see this is the point of the passage. The point of the passage is to show you what Bible justice looks like, because at the end of the passage, 
is a punchline. Isn't it nice when this story gives you that? Yes, we get a punchline here, and here is the point. Judah, at the end of the whole deal, says about the situation, he says, she is more righteous than I. That's it. Now, this is the word righteous. is really the word sadak, which is the word for just. This means just, as in justice. This is a, a legal term. See, Judah, in a way, he's like at the end of the story, he's presiding as a judge. He's saying when you take all the facts, when you look at the whole situation, he says, Tamar has been more just than I have. Oh, but why, Judah? Why have you been unjust? He fills in the blank for you. The New American Standard puts it nicely. He says, because I failed to give her to my son. That's it. Judah is acknowledging his own injustice here by his failure to provide when he could have for the widow, the outcast, the poor, and the immigrant, all of which Tamar was. Now, What are we supposed to learn about Bible justice from this statement, she is more righteous than I? Let's show this to you. Let's apply this to us in two ways. First, and here's the word justice, Bible justice is complex. Complex. What do I mean? All right. Here's what I mean. I hope you'll see that the Bible never calls what Tamar does here fully righteous or completely just. All right. The Bible never says, you know, prostitution and sexual entrapment are perfectly acceptable routes of personal expression because you know some people could do this some takes on this a liberal sort of social liberal take goes along these lines Tamar's body is her body she can do with it what she wants because she has been oppressed and she's got the right to express her sexuality however she wants to, no questions asked. And the very fact, people will say, that later in the story, the people here call her a whore is just another example of biblically conservative slut-shaming. Tamar saw what she wanted, and she went for it, case closed, YOLO, you get yours, you do you, girl. Right. But that's not what this is. Because on one hand, this whole sordid episode is supposed to stand in contrast to what you see in the next chapter we'll look at next week, which is the fact that through Joseph's sexual integrity, and here's the word, his chastity, when he is actually seduced by a beautiful woman in power over him, God rescues the world through Joseph's chastity. Now you say, well, that's kind of a nice story. Uh Uh-oh, no, no. That's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the Bible's fully orbed message on human sexuality. So let's look at it for 60 seconds. Did you know, here's the question, that if you call yourself a Christian, the Bible says your body is not your own. Your body's not your own. That means you cannot sleep with whomever you want to just because you want to or say you're in love. If you have sex with someone besides your spouse when you are married, that's called adultery. If you have sex with someone and you're not married to them when you're not married, that's called fornication. They are both sins that not only break God's heart, they not only ruin the world, but the Bible goes on to say that if you do not repent of those, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't shoot the messenger. It's in there for you to read on your own. And this story makes a point to say later as evidence that Judah has changed that his sex life has changed as well. Did you catch that? The point is if Jesus 
for the Christian person, isn't Lord of your sex life, you haven't given him anything. You say, well, what does this have to do with justice? Isn't it my body? Oh, no, we've made that clear. God says your body isn't yours, it's his. It isn't yours. And it says that God, obeying God's commands about sex is actually what you owe other people made in the image of God. That's why it's a justice issue. You say, well, that's kind of tough. No, I just said it's complex and it's true. But second here, justice isn't just complex in the Bible. It's also here for God's people. It's also non-negotiable. Again, Tamar is called more righteous, more just than Judah was everything she did right. No. What did she do? Again, let's recap, you know, news story here. She lied, fornicated, basically causes a riot back in town. But here we are told in this case that Judah's social injustice is a greater sin than Tamar's sexual immorality. You see that? Now, let's apply this in a way. And this is where it's going to get dicey for a moment, but hang on. It's all going to be okay. Many times in our culture, people have a hard time with a number of social justice groups, groups like, for example, Black Lives Matter, right? We'll say, people will say, look at some of their beliefs. They'll say, look how they conduct themselves. And yeah, not all of it is right. But we use frequently not more often than not, the smokescreen of things that aren't right about them to screen out and ignore the things that are, right? I mean, what did Tamar do? What's Tamar after here? She's after justice for the forgotten, for the vulnerable, for the racial outsider, for the immigrant, all of which she was, and she was willing to start a kind of a riot to get noticed. Now, violence is never okay. The Bible never commends that. Sexual immorality, as we've seen, is never committed by God, But can we, just as in Tamar's case, hear the cry for justice beyond the actions of some groups or people some of us may have a hard time with? Another example, what about all the, you say, what about all the, like the Me Too stuff, right? You know, Time's Up stuff. Listen, there's plenty to critique about the stuff said in the name of Me Too or stuff done in the name of Time's Up. But what's at the center of those? Come on. It's a cry to end violence against women, right? And I hope as Christians we would all say, yes, we love and agree with that. And it's against people like a Judah who use their institutionalized power to keep women impoverished. See, in a way, Judah here, Judah's like the original Harvey Weinstein. He is the original sort of Hollywood mogul with the casting couch, right? And the Bible, you've got to see this, has critiqued and condemned that kind of behavior from men for literally thousands of years before anyone ever like Harvey Weinstein or someone else like him showed up. So for those of you who would say, man, the Bible's pro-patriarchal, think again. God literally puts to death two men who mistreat a vulnerable woman. And he exposes a third man whose treatment of her is unjust. This is incredibly pro-woman, incredibly social, pro-social justice. The point here, it's simple. Social justice is non-negotiable for people who call on God's name. Judah, Judah's part of the family of God, right? He's part of the group of people who called on the name of the one true God. He should have known better. That's the point. Number one, in the passage, there's justice. Number two, though, here also is something called mercy. 
mercy here in the passage. Oh, but it's mercy for the bad guy. Mercy for the bad guy. Now, up till now, Judah's been the total bad guy, especially women. You know, you're probably hating them, understandably so. And again, the Bible doesn't try to just whitewash or mansplain away what he does. But I hope you'd also see that despite all that Judah has done, God isn't done with his son yet. God's not done with him yet. And I hope we would also love that about our God, that God never gives up on people. So what's God going to do? Well, God here is going to introduce him to something called mercy. But the mercy Judah is about to get is so painful, he almost pushes it away. God's about to do some open heart surgery in a way on Judah. And I think what God does here to Judah is the same thing we all need as well. Let me show you what I mean. Judah is on his way to a terrible place in life. He's getting darker by the minute, darker by the chapter. Last chapter, 37, he tries to kill his own brother, uh, Joseph. But Reuben steps in, right? Convinces him not to, talks him out of it. You would have thought that uh, Judah would have said, you know, dodged a bullet there. Thank goodness, you know, someone stepped in, didn't do that. But no, here, he's actually getting worse. When he finds out Tamar's pregnant, his response is, shocking. In Hebrew, he says two verbs, basically, take her, burn her. Burning someone alive in that day is rare, especially someone that Judah knew was pregnant. Pregnant. Why does he react so violently here? It's because you've got to see this, that Judah's heart has gone to the dark place every human heart can go to as well. Judah has become a serial blamer for the failures in his life. And because of that, he acts out against those whom he deems as less than he is, whom he deems as less morally than he is, or the one that he holds responsible for his lack of success in life. I mean, think about it. Why does he even care about Tamar? She didn't even live in his house. He didn't care about her. He hasn't seen her in years. And yet when word of her sin reaches his ears, this is his first response. Why? Oh, he's been looking for a way to get back at her for years. He's been blaming her (coughs) for the death of his two sons for years. And now he's got his reason. Judah was doing everything but looking in a mirror. He wasn't looking at his own failure as a father. Why? Oh, you know, it's because it's always easier, isn't it, to blame someone else. Or to blame a system in Judah's case, right? He could have said, this woman, this person cost me my first son. And this system of leveret marriage cost me my second son. Blame, he, could have, he was putting all over the place. And now he's on his way to try to commit murder for the second time. I hear it all the time from people, maybe you do too. People will say, they say it to me. You know, Morgan, the problem with the world is those fill-in-the-blanks. You know, those liberals, they ruin everything. They ruin the government. They ruin our nation. Or the problem with the world is those conservatives. They're so angry, hard-hearted. What's, uh, what's wrong is, you know, in the, with our country is the men today, right? Selfish. Or what's wrong is the women. What's wrong is those people are that skin color. But do you know what people never say? Go look on every Yahoo chat forum, every YouTube chat forum, every news forum. No one ever says the problem with the world is me. No one ever says it. You'll never find it. Because if you can't stand those people, right? Him, her, that group. You're on your way to becoming a Judah. 
on the way to becoming a Judah. You say, that's a bit extreme. No, it's not. What did Jesus say? If you hate someone, it's just like murder. Judah has hated Tamar, blamed her for the death of his two sons. And that's a big deal, because for Judah, it meant loss of standing in the community, loss of money, loss of sons to care for him in his old age, maybe just loss of two boys that he loved. What did he need to break him free, to keep him from doing something he could never undo? Oh, as C.S. Lewis called it, Judah needs and got a severe mercy severe mercy. How's that going to happen? Oh, it's brilliant storytelling here by the narrator that shows you. When Tamar is called out, when she's brought to be burned, she knows this is her moment. This is the moment she's counted on. She knew it was inevitable, and she's got the presence of mind to grab Judah's staff and cord, sort of her version of the paternity test, right? To be able to ID him as the father, and she sends them with a message to Judah. And in the Hebrew, her message is two words. It's hawker Nah, hawker, nah. It's brilliant. It's both a question and a statement at the same time in Hebrew. It can be put like this. Hawker, nah can be put as a question. Do you recognize or as a statement, you better recognize? <laughs> hawker, nah, Judah, you boy, you better recognize. You better recognize who you are, what you've done. You are in the wrong, Judah. Time's up. But it can be also translated as a question. As Tamar pleading with Judah, do you, do you recognize Judah? Not just your stupid staff or stupid court. Do you recognize who you are? Can you see what's going on around you? Oh, and here's why. This is so brilliant because the same root verb, nakar, that's used over and over in the book of Genesis at crucial points. We are told that years earlier when Jacob is standing before his aging blind father, Isaac, he's dressed up in animal skins to deceive his brother. It said that Isaac could not nakar. He could not recognize. Jacob had fooled him. Oh, but the same thing happens years later to Jacob at the hand now of his own son. And which son was it? It was Judah. Judah had become, had come before Jacob, now himself an old man, with a bloody coat to deceive his father. And the same word is used, oh, father, do you nakar? Do you recognize? Now it's the same thing again. Third generation, only with a twist. Because whereas Isaac and Jacob couldn't recognize what was going on, by God's grace, Judah does here. Why? Oh, it's because Isaac and Jacob were deceived with lies. But Judah comes face to face with the severe mercy of truth. When the truth of who he is, who he is really like, apart from the grace of God, he doesn't just see his staff. He finally sees his soul. Finally, by God's grace, the generational curse, the generational pattern of deception lying handed down through the generations, the spiraling in the darkness will be broken. And here's how you know it did its work, how the severe mercy of God changed him. Because at the end of the book, that verb nakar is used one more time instead of Joseph's brothers and specifically Judah. Later in the future, when they go to Egypt to see the prince of Egypt, their brother Joseph, whom they sold into slavery, it said they could not nakar Joseph. And then when Joseph, as the prince of Egypt, asked for Benjamin to be kept back as a ransom in that moment, who else? Who does it? Oh, Judah steps up and offers himself in his brother's place. He did for Benjamin then, when he was vulnerable, what he could not do here for Tamar when she was. Judah 
has been changed. Why? Oh, it's because Judah, right here, Judah repents. He repents. That's what's happening. He can finally, for the first time, acknowledge his wrongdoing. He can acknowledge he is no better than him, no better than her. He is not better than them or that. And Judah is spared the judgment he would have received because he repented. And if you want to come to know God today, if you want to come to know him, if you want that pattern of or a curse of sin or, or darkness ended in your life, it always begins with repentance. It was the first message of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus said first words, first message, repent for the kingdom of God is near. So what then? Whew. What caused Judah to repent? Oh, it's the same thing that can set us free. Judah saw an innocent victim about to be put into the fire and take the place and the punishment for what he had done. He's about to see someone take his place for his sin. You say, oh, how can I see the same? Not by looking at Judah, but by looking at someone else. Because unlike Judah, who was unwilling to give his son to redeem the life of Tamar. Come on, y'all. There was another father, a far more loving, far more infinitely just father, who was willing to give his own son to redeem the lives of all of us Tamars, all of us Judas, all of us who have been the perpetrator of something far worse than Judah ever did. It was our own sin and selfishness that put Jesus Christ to death on that cross. Oh, but unlike Tamar, the almost substitute, who lived when she cried out to be spared. Jesus Christ cried out and wasn't heard. Unlike Tamar, who was only relatively righteous, Jesus Christ was truly righteous, but no one could recognize it. No one could in a car. No one could see it. No one could see what they were doing, and we put him to death. But he was raised to life and lives to break every curse, every curse, every bit of hate, and wants us to do the same How do we get that power? Oh, it's by seeing, recognizing, and responding to the severe mercy of Jesus Christ. Oh, but we can't end there. Oh, that's good. (laughs) But but there's something here that's amazing that happens at the end of the passage. It's the last thing we're told, so we can't miss it. There's now finally not just justice and mercy. Oh, but there's breakthrough. There's breakthrough. Look at this. It says, when the time came for Tamar to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And by the way, as a reader of Genesis, you've been in this series long enough, you ought to know by now that when twin boys come up in the story, something's about to happen. And it does. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife tied a scarlet thread around it, said this one came out first. But when he drew his hand back and the brother came out, she said, oh, so this is how you broken out. And he was named Perez. What's happening? Well, in a word, breakthrough. And let me tell you how you can get it, number one, and how we can get it as a church. The name Perez first means to break out or break through because he broke past his brother out of darkness into light. And because of this, now Perez becomes the carrier of the messianic seed. When we get to the gospel of Matthew, New Testament, we see Perez has become an ancestor, a forefather of Jesus Christ. What does it show us? Oh, again, a picture of the gospel that the last shall be 
first. See, Perez here, he's one of a long lot of people in the Bible who, despite his background, despite what they weren't given, how they started, the last place spot they started in, they pushed toward the grace of God. They just won't quit. They're like Jacob, who, at his moment of redemption, he says to the angel, he said, oh, I won't let you go until you bless me. Uh, he's like, like Jabez later, who says, oh, God, would you bless me? Don't forget about me, God. Hear me, when you're fed up with living a lie, when you're fed up with where you've been put in a box or hiding in the dark, God is already waiting on you. He's calling out to you today. You, you, you today. Like I believe he's calling out to Perez here. Oh, come on, boy. Come on up out of where you are. It's time to break through. Come on toward me. Don't quit. He keep holding on to me. I'm with you. And can you see? It's that kind of spirit. It's that kind of faith that God uses to bring his work into the world. And second, this shows us how we, though, we as a church can also break through final thought. Years after this, in another Bible book called the Book of Ruth, there's another funky, odd, leveret marriage happening between another Jewish man, another immigrant woman, between rich older Boaz and poor younger Ruth. And it's happening in a little tight-knit town, a little you know community of faith called Bethlehem. And the town of Bethlehem is asked to render a verdict on this marriage. They're asked to bless, potentially, this biracial marriage. They're asked to receive the people who are into the center of who they are, who have this multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomic vision for their city. They're asked to look, the people are, beyond stereotypes, between money, beyond age, beyond skin color, in a day and age when those were everything. And what do they do? Oh, they say yes to it. They say absolutely, Boaz and Ruth, bring it on. And what do they point to when they say yes In Ruth 4.12, the people in Bethlehem, they say to Ruth and Boaz, they say, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. I love it. They point to this story, Genesis 38, this messy story of salvation. And they say, oh, we're going to embrace all of it. They say, we know that God's grace flows towards the outcast and the weak. We're those kind of people. Our ancestors were those kind of people. God's used those kind of people to build our nation. And God loves everyone, so, and so will we. They say, Boaz and Ruth, oh, come on and bring your, oh, your bad selves, your multi-ethnic, multi-generational, socioeconomic relationship right in the middle of who we are. And do you know what God blessed that town that day for? Because one day, oh, the hope of all the world, Jesus Christ, was born in Bethlehem. God honored that choice. That group of people made. The world one day broke through because one town broke through and they embraced, pulled into the center of them what God already had. And church, may the same be said of us. All God's people said, amen. Let's go to the Father now in prayer asking for that grace to be ours.